Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. On this program, we ask poets to select poetry from the New Yorker archive, to read and discuss. Then they read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. Today, my guest is Christian Wyman, the poet, essayist, editor, and translator, whose honors include the 2016 Aiken Taylor Award for Modern American Poetry and the 2020 Lifetime Achievement Award for the Conference on Christianity and Literature. Chris, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you again, Kevin. Likewise. So you've chosen to read two short poems from the archive, Far From Kingdoms, and Outside, in fact, There Wasn't Any Change, both by Patrizia Cavalli and translated from the Italian by Judith Baumel. What drew you to these particular poems as you were perusing the archive? Oh, you know, I've, I've long liked Patrizia Cavalli's poems. I mean, I haven't known about them that long for a decade or so, but she's been very well translated and, and translated by a lot of different American and English poets. And one of the things that I love about her is that she writes about very intense things with a very deft, light touch. And so her poems can have a, they can have an almost floating feel to them. And you hardly realize that you've been sort of stabbed as they, as they go by you. Let's listen to the poems. Here's Christian Wyman reading Far From Kingdoms by Patrizia Cavalli. Translated by Judith Baumel. Far from kingdoms, far from kingdoms, how steady is the room. Come, breathe close with me so I may discover the sweetness of many imperfections. Some missing tooth, some extra wrinkle, and your body worn out slightly by carelessness. That was Far From Kingdoms by Patrizia Cavalli and translated from the Italian by Judith Baumel, which was published in the October 1st, 1990 issue of the magazine. It was great to hear that. And I love how you read it um, because what struck me right away was the pacing in the poem and the way she kind of saves us for that last line surprise. There is a you, I suppose, earlier in the poem, but suddenly this body appears, um, the missing tooth. You know, and it's almost like she's discussing the missingness, but it's suddenly being uh, assembled in front of us at the end. How did you take the ending of that poem? I um, I think one of the moving things about it is that we fall in love with all of the ways in which our partners have been wounded. You fall in love with the wounds as well as the strengths. And this is a poem of great care that's celebrating carelessness at the end. And so it's not as if the carelessness has been 
subsumed entirely. It still exists within this relationship, but it's it's become part of the love. And and I I really like the poem for that reason. And I also just like that it's in the melee of our lives and all of the noise of politics and everything that goes around us. We all live for these moments that are small and interior and intense, far from kingdoms, how steady is the room? And she manages to get that. I should say, you know, in the Italian, I think, I don't read Italian, but it's a gendered language and you would pick up that this is a woman, not a man, and which may or may not be important, but it's interesting to know. And it's lost in the translation. Yeah, yeah. Um, since we don't have the original in front of us, is there anything else musically that you notice in the poem? Because I also think there's a kind of um, music the translation captures. You do some translating yourself. Do you think about that when you're reading something like this? I do, I do. I, and I wonder, like I say, I don't read Italian. I do read Spanish and can get by in Italian, but uh, I can at least puzzle out the sounds and get a sense of what the poem sounds like. And here I think there's a discrepancy between the, the booming beginning, far from kingdoms, how steady is the room, and then the rest of the poem becomes quite quiet. And she even has an, an exclamation point after that those first two lines. Yeah. Well, that's there here, which I love. And there's this kind of, I mean, in English at least, there's this kind of rhyme, uh, consonants, kingdoms, room, and then uh, sweetness and carelessness, which I'm sure the translator has thought of. But I'm struck also by the breaks and your body break worn out slightly, which, you know, adverbs are like, you don't usually use them that much. And then here it's like the poem would be so different if it didn't have that slightly. It just, um, it's so wonderful. Yeah, that's a great observation. I had not noticed that at all. And also that some missing and then tooth is a, on the next line where you don't know what's missing until you get there. <laughs> Right. And a tooth is so different. And they're talking about imperfections, the sweetness of many imperfections, which is true. And I think you put it so well in the start. This poem is about the beloved in some sense and how the beloved is always perfect in their imperfections. Yeah. Yeah. Love manages to subsume those. And why do you think the kingdom's there? I mean, I have my own guess, but I'm curious about yours. Well, that was my guess is that <laughs> that this happens, this moment of Domestic intimacy happens far from kingdoms and also despite kingdoms, despite the mm. fact that kingdoms are, are in fact always encroaching upon us. What's your guess? Is it different than that? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I think um, this question of power and, and distance, the farness that you're talking about, I think is really interesting or that the poet is talking about, I should say, how far are we talking? I always love that in a poem, you know, when um, Pound's version of the river merchant's wife, a letter where she says, I will come to meet you as far as Chofu Sa. And I always ask my students, do you think that's far or do you think that's <laughs> kind of like halfway or just a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. how, how far is that? You know, and I think there's here that distance it, it feels enormous, you know, and, and, but you feel like it's someone within that kingdom, yeah, yeah. but far from it, if that makes sense. Like you said, despite kingdoms. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way I read it. And that's probably a good way to move into the next one, which also I think plays on that literal figurative line. Absolutely. Let's, let's hear it. So the other poem is uh, called outside. In fact, there wasn't any change. So let's hear Christian Wyman reading outside. In fact, there wasn't any change by Patrizia Cavalli translated by Judith Baumel. Outside. In fact, there wasn't any change. 
Outside, in fact, there wasn't any change. The ripened disease is what removes me from the streets. It has grown inside me and corrupted my eyes and all my other senses, and the world arrives like a quotation. Everything has happened by now, but me, where was I? When did the great diversion come? Where did the string become untied? Where did the fissure open up? Which is the lake that lost its waters and, changing the landscape, scrambles my way? That was Outside, in fact, There Wasn't Any Change by Patrizia Cavalli and translated from the Italian by Judith Baumel, which was published in the January 21st, 1991 issue of The New Yorker. So you said that our talk of distance brought you here, uh, thinking about this poem. Tell me what makes you think about this uh, in terms of place or distance. Well, I also the distance and also the uh, distance between the person and reality in this poem and also the line between the literal and the figurative. I can't quite tell when I first start reading this poem whether the disease, the ripened disease, is literal or figurative. Ripened yeah. suggests it's literal, but, but the rest of the poem suggests it's figurative. And mm. I don't know. The poem seems to allow a literal reading, but to suggest a figurative one, partly because of the tenses change. Mm. Outside, in fact, there wasn't any change, but then in the next line, the ripened disease is what removes me from the streets. So it becomes present tense. And then in the second stanza, everything has happened by now. Right. Tenses keep shifting in this poem. And I find it a powerful expression of a kind of disease of despair that can come upon you. And you don't know when it started. You don't know where it came from. You don't know when the string became untied or the fissure opened up or which is the mm -hmm. lake. Apparently there are a lot of lakes there, but which is the lake that lost its waters and now everything is scrambled and you can't get through it and can't get back to reality. And the world arrives like a quotation, which is a great that's, phrase. Oh man, that's an incredible line. Yeah, yeah. Where everything, everything seems to come to you in quotes as if it's not quite real and has a tinged with irony and has this distance to it. Well, and that it belongs to someone else in a weird way, yeah, like yeah. that it isn't felt or experienced, but it's spoken of. As you say, it doesn't feel like you can quite reach it, but it also feels used up somehow already. It has grown inside me and corrupted my eyes. Yeah, secondhand. Everything becomes secondhand. Sure. I wonder, too, you know, just hearing it now aloud, uh, as we've been still two years later dealing with the pandemic um, in different ways, you know, if we take it for a moment to be literal or, or think of that kind of removal from the streets that's happened to many of us, I think that's really a powerful moment because it also has this other accompanying feeling or set of feelings that I don't think we've sorted out yet, even if we all return to work tomorrow. So here we are. Uh, what scrambled the way? I mean, it's a different feeling, but it's curious to me um, what you're talking about, the literal which I think is also accompanied by the metaphoric, maybe. Mm -hmm. That's, a, I think, a powerful way to think about this poem uh, and, a, and a evidence of how a poem can really shift, doesn't necessarily change it, but shift its meaning depending on the context. I mean, Kay Ryan has a famous example in The New Yorker 
about the chickens coming home to roost and that that was accepted before 9-11, but then it ran after 9-11. And of course it had a completely different meaning, different inflection to the poem. And I know she was ambivalent about that. Um, Right, right. Well, how do you feel about a kind of poem like this, which I think is purposely thinking about ambiguity, but also able to kind of talk about philosophy, but the lake. I mean, it's it's a, a thing I admire in your work, too, that we're going to hear in a minute. But how did you, you know, do you think it shifts on you or um, is that a tonal thing that you're drawn to as well? Absolutely. I think it's more powerful, given the reading that you gave it, that that uh, it seems to me more power, a poem becomes more powerful if it can speak into these different circumstances in which it wasn't written, uh, despite whatever misgivings a poet might have. But I think the powerful thing about this poem as it relates to now is sort of exactly what you were saying, that the pandemic has existed literally and figuratively at the same time. And we can't disentangle the two and we're suffering from both. And and so it's very difficult to even figure out when did this start? How did this start? You know, is this something that was even happening before the pandemic? I know in my own life, there's a kind of, um, depression or despair that the pandemic has brought about and you can't get your hands around it. You know, you can't figure out exactly how to, how to reckon with it. I mean, there's other kinds of reckoning that I think have an accompany, accompanied it. And um, I keep returning to those lines and, and that beginning, which is so um, uh, matter of fact, and in English has a kind of almost non-poetic quality, yeah. <laughs> you know, outside, in fact, you know, it's almost like a dispatch or something. But then that ripened disease, as you put it, is so powerful. And it is that real mix of, and I think sometimes the feelings you're describing have that mix of something deeply felt and then something kind of clinical almost. The ripened disease is what removes me, removes me feels very different. Or the great diversion, you know, which isn't quite... Um, the same as a great depression or the great resignation, but somehow there's this kind of um, talking to those ideas. Yeah, those are great observations, I think. I really like that distinction between those first two lines where it is repertorial and then suddenly very visceral and those two things just jam together. Well, and I, I love that the lake, we're hearing it rather than seeing it, but if you turn to the magazine, you can... Here, even that pacing, which is the lake that lost its waters and changing the landscape, you know, it's almost happening in front of us. And I love how a poem enacts uh, the processes it it describes and rather it doesn't even describe it, enacts it. And so here we are changing the landscape scrambles my way. The my is sort of delayed there. This lake is expanding and changing. And then the way is scrambled, which is such a um, great verb there. Yeah, that's that's a great perception, and and it's weird. Um, I'm reminded again for the millionth time of how having despair or depression articulated or given form can be a great consolation to it. Even though even though this offers no consolation, literally, <laughs> literally <Right>. but <laughs> right, <laughs> but having it having it in form is consoling. Sure. Yeah. yeah. No. I mean. It's only funny because it's true. You know, you you put it so well. I mean, you know, I'm a fan of the blues and come from that tradition in many ways. And to me, part of the blues's power is naming pain. 
you know, and I think it names it in order to get past it. But it also here is naming it to kind of say that it isn't a small thing. It's the fissure. It's the string. You know, it isn't a, this moment that shouldn't be unremarked upon. And, and it's a different kind of testimony. And I think a very personal one. I don't know. I think the temptation can be to, to make it bigger. And this manages to do both. I don't know. Somehow it's, it's both personal and mythic at the same time for me. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, the temptation can be to be self-dramatizing. And this, what, what I respond to in this poem is it's not at all that. Yeah. I wonder about the plain spokenness of it. And does that come across in the original? I wonder. And, and I'm always fascinated by tone and how you translate that. Is that something you think about? You know, do you feel like you're making choices in translating between tone and sound and meaning and are all those the same thing for you as a translator? Oh, I've done so little translating. I, mean, I did one book and then I've done a scattered translations here and there that I don't feel like I... That's one more than me. I just want to... <laughs> <laughs> and then many of our listeners too. So you have done a lot. <laughs> um. But yes, I think you do take all those things into account and think about them. One of the r really interesting things about the way that Patrizia Cavalli has been translated, and in particular, the, the selected poems that came out a few years ago that had all those different American translators in it, and some English, um, is that she doesn't really seem like one poet in that book. She seems like a lot of different poets. Sometimes you can sort of feel it going far afield and you think, mm, I don't know about that. I don't know how close that can be to this other poet. And that's something I think that they did deliberately. They wanted to filter it through all these different American voices and see, see what survived or what it, what it amounted to. She said, I read an interview with her where she said that um, what she felt like when she was reading it was like she was getting to know all of these other poets in, <laughs> individually, but maybe not herself so much. That's wonderful. Now, in our May 14, 2018 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, Eating Grapes Downward, which you'll read for us in a moment. But first, is there anything you'd like to say about the poem or that you think listeners should know? Uh, maybe I should say it uses two Japanese words, karategi and kiai. The first is a, what you wear doing, when doing karate, and kiai is the sound that one makes. And it mentions Samuel Butler. You don't need to know this, but he was a 19th century novelist and critic, now pretty well forgotten, although not completely, but, you know, obscure. And I think that's all. Let's hear it. Here's Christian Wyman reading his poem, Eating Grapes Downward. Eating Grapes Downward. Every morning, without thinking, I open my notebook and see if something might have grown in me during the night. Usually, no. But sometimes a tendril tries a crack in my consciousness, and if I remain only indirectly aware of it and tether my attention to the imminent and perhaps ultimately unseeable sun, sometimes it will grow. Inevitably, a sense of insignificance intrudes. I think of all the lives in all the places waiting in their ways for something to grow out of them, into them. Is it the same God? 
I have a cousin whose political opinions vile up out of him on the Internet in the most imaginative ways. He sports a cartoon mustache like Raleigh Fingers that was a lodestone of enduring awe in my childhood, along with his gift for scissoring bricks with one blow. With his spanking karategi and cowboy kiai, his weasel sleek of hair and handlebars, he was a spectacle there in Midland, Texas, circa 1973, where the sun slammed the blacktop and the pump jacks beaked the background like prehistoric crows. Always eat grapes downward, advises Samuel Butler, a corroded copy of whose notebooks I perused at the backwoods Woodbridge bookstore that seemed, somehow, already erstwhile. While my daughters fussed and bleated to be outside with the miniature cow Mona, so named because her moo was like a moan. Savor the best grapes first, Butler means, so there will be none better on the bunch, and each will seem delicious to the last. In truth, I don't quite follow the logic, though his conclusion, past fifty, everyone eats their days downward, is unassailable. What else? That people who can whistle their speech. My terminal confusion of preterite and predicate. The meanings we live but cannot have. Oh, and Mona, who seemed less cow than concept, really, half animal, half irony, sticking her rubbable muzzle through the fence like a Labrador. We stayed a long while petting the impossibility of her. We gave her, if you can believe it, grapes left over from our lunch. And when they were gone, and we were almost, her moo blewed the air like a sorrow so absurd it left nothing left of us but laughter. I was eating grapes downward by Christian Wyman. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's a speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I love Mona in this poem. <laughs> what a, a gift slash invention, however it came, but it has that great 
quality um it leads to some of my favorite sounds in the poem miniature cow mona so named because her moon was like a moan but also um that cow concept half animal half irony line which is so wonderful and her rubbable muzzle those sounds i think are so rich and then the poem is also a little how we were talking about cavalli's work able to kind of talk about these mix of feelings some delicious to the last and some the meanings we live but cannot have how did that come about for you in the in the poem i mean it, it takes in a lot you know uh this almost journey it takes does it come from a kind of literal sense of a journey or is it just working out these ideas that um must have been fun to stumble across butler's strange quote yeah that was what triggered the poem that quote and i did buy that book and i brought it home and you know lived with it for a while it was not very interesting the book but i you know i i um read around in it but that struck me that phrase struck me and and the paragraph about it which doesn't make any sense to me and then the rest of the poem in all honesty it all just uh fell out of me yeah and i was well, you know how this goes you follow the sounds sure the sounds are leading you on and in all honesty i wrote it and sort of never looked back at it. And until we got ready to do this podcast and I began looking at it much more closely, reading my own poem, I began making discoveries and, and seeing things that I really hadn't seen because I, I follow the sounds. Yeah, yeah. Well, people might not know, we've known each other a long time. I think it's going on 30 years. We were in the same class a long time ago at the Stegner, and that was so wonderful. And you were always a sound man then, I must say. Um, you, you, you always had that quality. I think there's also something here about, I wouldn't have said this before and reading it again, it feels almost like a kind of Ars Poetica, because it takes in some of these questions of notebooks and writing and seeing if something's grown in you. And then that question, which I think does course through some of your other poems, is it the same God? You know, you kind of go past it, but you know, then you have Mona almost as this kind of, um, I don't know, is she a stand-in? Is she like a visiting being, you know, whatever she is that uh, urges you on. Um, so tell me about that. Like, did you recognize in reading it again, which you know, I'm sure some of our listeners might not know that sometimes poems fall out of you uh, in the way you're talking about, and that you're discovering a little, like you said, Cavalli did, looking at the poet who wrote this uh, almost as a stranger. How, how did that feel? Do you see those themes in some of your other work here? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you have certain obsessions in your work. And, you know, I tend not to trust writers who don't have obsessions, who you can't find a single <laughs> obsession all the way through. But so I am obsessed with God. I'm obsessed with uh, the tears of things, lacrimae rerum, and because I feel them, I feel that in the world. And so this is a poem about sorrow, I think, ultimately, and about um, how we have any communication with God and what part creation, our own creation has to do with that. So yeah, I was I was not at all conscious that I was treating these grave subjects as I was writing the poem. I was thinking about this whimsical cow who is real, <laughs> not outside that bookshop, but actually there was a cow, that, a miniature cow that we, that <laughs> my daughter's fed at another place down in Texas. Sure, sure. 
and I was just playing with the sounds and floating over all this. And mm -hmm. I do think laughter, you know, it ends in laughter. And I think laughter sure. can have a kind of metaphysical significance. Well, there's a sociologist, philosopher, Peter Berger, who says during the moment of comedy, the tragedy of man is bracketed and religion vindicates the comic and, and reinterprets the meaning of laughter or something like that. And so I think a, a moment of laughter in a work, in a poem or a, another work of literature, what have you, can be not simply a moment of like comic relief, though it can be that, sure, but, sure. but it can also be um, a kind of the same metaphysical significance of sorrow or these other things that we're talking about. Well, and the, and the poem has a humor, I think if only in its ability to kind of um, not be so sure about itself while it's also kind of assured I, i'm thinking about lines like and each will seem delicious to the last in truth i don't quite follow the logic you know um there's a there's that kind of tone a rhetorical tone that comes up and then you get to pack in uh raleigh fingers and samuel butler in the same poem um that's pretty good you know you're you're making use of the full range of uh the experience of of what it is to be right now um and and that idea that you talk about that seems somehow already erstwhile while my daughter's fussed and bleated to be outside you know there's a real interesting sense of language there but also of what's lost there's a kind of bittersweetness in the poem that isn't simply just sorrow at least to me um at least it makes out of it a cartoon mustache and makes yeah. laughter out of these observations. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I should have I should have included Raleigh Fingers in my introduction because he was a famous reliever way back when. I mean, if you're not a certain age, you want to everybody knows who Raleigh yeah, Fingers exactly, is. Let's, let's, yeah. face let's face it. But he uh, he he was famous for his handlebar this this waxed handlebar mustache, and he was also like one of the first. He may have been the first. Uh, picture to become famous as a reliever. They're everywhere now, but but back sure. then they weren't thought of as that. And, and uh, he grew. He that had thing. that great name. I mean, his I name alone. Um, and even Butler, you, you get some some double triple meanings there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess what I admire about it, um, the first line, which seems like some of the openness that the poem seems open to, like every morning without thinking, I open. Uh, I love that idea. And somehow it has a kind of um, feeling of a mind at work and wandering a bit. But in the end, it's very controlled and, and, and tight. Is that something you're conscious of? Now that you say it, and now that the poem exists, uh, certainly. I mean, I, I, I can see that the aim was in, in a way to sort of have the experience of, you know, opening your notebook and this thing falls into place and everything. And it wasn't quite that easy. Uh, <laughs> um, but also the you know i i do think that you're onto something by saying it's a kind of ars poetica like my statement of poetry or what poetry can mean to me particularly the meanings we live but do not have that line that that uh comes near the end of the poem because if i have a sense of the poem it's that because i would be hard pressed to say what the meaning of this poem is except for that there seems to be meaning everywhere in it, very important to me in my life, and I have it. But ask me what it is, I'm not quite sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, and I love the grapes in that way. And to be honest, I think a, a lesser poet would have ended with 
the conclusion everyone hates their days downward is unassailable. I mean, that in a way is a is a philosophy. You've hit it. And then you say, what else? <laughs> you know, like you let the speaker, you let yourself say, what else is there? And I think that's a, an important moment. And, you know, sometimes I, I see that we stop ourselves if we're writers from doing that, you know, from asking that question. Instead, we're like, this is a really good ending. Uh, and here I feel like, you know, that extra stanza with that petting the impossibility of her, um, which I think is 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 very another way of saying living it and not having it like there's this impossible thing, yet it's right there uh, and it's it's touchable. I think that's really part of what the poem is about and that that what else gets you to. It gets us back to Mona and that kind of notebook feeling, but also about that lush ending. I, it feels very lush to me, even though it's blued the air like a sorrow so absurd. And, and ringing lushness out of that seems one of the points. Yeah, and you have to believe it. We gave her, if you can believe it, grapes. So that in some way, that I think it's about, I mean, one of the things I was noticing is that one of my other obsessions is a link between aesthetic experience, particularly poetry for me, but aesthetic experience and religious experience and the way one can mirror the other and demand the other. And so I think the the line there, if you can believe it near the end, clearly echoes back to the God that was brought up in the first stanza. Again, I didn't, it, I'm using it colloquially here. It's like, if you can sure. believe it, it seems so preposterous, but. <laughs> but. Right. Well, are they, um, are they Butler's grapes or are they like the Ur grape? Are they the, <laughs> yeah. the body? I mean, what are they meant to be for, for the poet there? Literal grapes, man. <laughs> <laughs> Concord. I, we want to know. Seedless. Like we want. We, we want to know the specific. No, I, I think there's something in that that I, I, I think is really great. Again, I I remember. Uh, I don't know when it was. Probably when I was working on poems about my dad. I was like, I want to write poems that are, happened, but then ring from them metaphor if you know like the metaphor was part of the experience and somehow it felt really important uh for me in those moments to make meaning out of it yeah and there's something in that in the end of the poem it feels like yeah that's very provocative for me because it's not like you're foisting metaphor onto it or that it existed for it did exist for you there at the time but completely unconsciously it was part of it it's Seamus Heaney is the one who's so good at that oh my gosh yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. And I think that's the thing that I'm sure he gave me permission in a way, having studied with him years ago, but also just hearing him read and reading him over the years. Um, the other thing I think he teaches us is that you can return to those experiences like those are yours, you know, like you don't have a choice in a way, you know, when he writes about his brother passing, I mean, it's so powerful. And, you know, someone else would be like, I wrote that one elegy, of course, us who end up having to write elegies, no, you just keep doing it. And yeah. you're trying to get at that thing because it isn't about, uh, you know, or maybe it is about those meetings we live but cannot have. Yeah. Yeah. It's not capturing the experience because you don't do that exactly. It's somehow honoring the reality of them, keeping them real in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a powerful way of thinking about how poems kind of accompany us and also change. And it goes back to, for me, again, the way that this poem feels like it talks about lots of aspects of 
uh, your writing, including, I would say, Texas right there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I wonder if you, how do you wrestle with that uh, in others of your work? You know, is place always there for you? Uh, Texas is like the place I can't escape. And I left there when I was 18, 17, actually. And it's like the place in my mind that I cannot escape. And it, it exerts such gravitational force on me. The landscape, the people, I mean, the tough people who sometimes just seem like instances of the landscape somehow, like they're parts of it, uh, including this guy, this cousin who's quite real. He still seems to me like Texas embodied. Well, in that spectacle where the sun slammed the blacktop and the pump jacks beaked the background like prehistoric crows. I mean, Heaney uh, definitely uh, made his appearance there. I mean, you yeah. have to uh, be chewing up the landscape there and have that sound, that sound that Heaney, I think, helps us hear. Yeah, that definitely owes something to Heaney, I'm sure. And I regret him so hard over the years, as you know. Yeah. Um but yeah, and I think of Texas as a hard place. I think, I mean, those hard sounds and those lines are my experience of Texas and quite different from the ending. Right. Yeah, different where it becomes vowel sounds. Her moo blew the air. Well, and again, there's the blues, Texas blues right there. Exactly. I thought of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so wonderful. Um Will you tell us sort of what you're up to now and what you're thinking about? Are you writing a, something new or... I've just put together a book which is called Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair, since we were talking about despair, and it's it's made up of all kinds of things. It's I say this in the brief little intro of the book that I, I've published all these different kinds of books and they come out discreetly, but I just don't experience them that way. They seem to me to all bleed together and and I don't experience genre that way. That all seems to me to bleed together as well. And so I wanted to see if I could write one book that simply put it all in there and and see what see what happens. So that's what it is. A mixture of all all the different kinds of writing I've done, including editing. There's even you know, five sections that are edited, purely edited bits of other people's writing. Well I love that. I mean I feel this much the same way. I mean I, I definitely sometimes deciding to write nonfiction or an essay or something like that. But I've come to understand that's almost a poet's approach to it. You know, like yeah. poets feel pretty comfortable or sometimes, you know, sure. Uh, I need a sonnet right now. And I need this, you know, it doesn't seem uh, so far away to us perhaps. Um, well, this is so wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris. Great to be with you, Kevin. Thank you. Eating Grapes Downward by Christian Wyman as well as Judith Baumel's translations of Patrizia Cavalli's Far From Kingdoms, and outside, in fact, there wasn't any change, can be found on newyorker.com. Judith Baumel's translations of Patrizia Cavalli's poems appear in the book, My Poems Will Not Change the World. Christian Wyman's latest collection is Survival is a Style. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and The New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. 
with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 